chapter 17, an oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus shall cease to be a city and become a heap of ruins. Same idea as the Moabites. Only this is just another aspect of the equation. Each of these nations typifies something. They were actual nations anciently. Damascus were also a kindred people. They were the people where Laban lived, where Jacob got himself wives and flocks. They were the people where Eliezer was sent to get a wife for Isaac. Damascus shall cease to be a city and become a heap of ruins. Again, same idea, covenant curse. The cities of Arur shall lie forsaken and become places for herds to recline where no one will disturb them. That is also a covenant curse that cities lie desolate and animals kind of take over where people live. When Ephraim's defense comes to an end, so shall the sovereignty of Damascus. As with the glory of the children of Israel, so shall it be with Aram's remnant, says the Lord of hosts. Aram is the country, Damascus is the capital city there. They were generally in league with the northern kingdom, the ten tribe kingdom led by Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. And so sometimes the ten tribe kingdom, as in this case, was just referred to as Ephraim. These nations hung together in an alliance against Assyria, as we saw in chapter 7 and 8. But Isaiah prophesies that they'll come to an end, that that alliance will not work. The Assyrians will come in and take these nations captive and destroy their lands. Basically, that's what it's saying here. When Ephraim's defense comes to an end, that is, when Ephraim's defenses will not stand up against the Assyrians, or when Ephraim's defenses are somehow collapse, perhaps before the Assyrians come in, so it shall the sovereignty of Damascus, the government of Damascus, whatever nation that is. Today, it's not sure. We know that the king of Assyria destroys entire nations, does away with the borders of nations, and makes them all one empire. As with the glory of the children of Israel, so shall be with Aram's remnant. The northern kingdom, in this case, one main component of the Lord's people. In an end-time scenario, we would have someone who would represent Ephraim today and who would represent Damascus today. And they both hang together and they both come to an end together. In that day, Jacob's glory shall wane and his fatness of body become leanness. This kind of goes back to the time when Jacob and his 12 sons were beginning to suffer from the famine and they went down to Egypt. A similar situation presented itself here for Jacob's descendants. They will suffer covenant curse, famine or otherwise. There will be a time of scarcity, perhaps through drought. Now Jacob could be the Lord's people anywhere in the world. Well, it could be in a particular situation, a particular place. But the glory, again, fades. That which is now glorious or elite or prosperous fades away. That's part of the reversal of circumstances. The only people who really come out of the situation and reverse their leanness and become fat are the Lord's people, Zion. They're the ones who will eventually assume glory. So there's a contrast here between Jacob or the Lord's people in general, or the descendants of Jacob, in the book of Isaiah, and a specific group among those people, the elect, or the people of Zion. They're not included in this scenario. People of Zion are not part of Jacob that's talked about here. After being like a harvest of ripe grain, whose ears are reaped by the armful, 
which is covenant blessing. So they were blessed of God exceedingly because of previous or former righteousness and former covenant keeping, because Jacob had covenants with God. He will become like ears plucked in the valley of Rephaim, or the valley of ghosts, when only the gleanings are left. The people who picked gleanings were the homeless, the destitute. They were allowed to come in after the harvest was over, after the main harvest, after the workers in the field had taken out everything virtually. They came gathering whatever they could find. And the Lord made provision for the poor in ancient Israel that way, that they should leave some of the gleanings for the poor and not take everything totally when they harvested. So the Lord's people and the people of Damascus, in effect, will become like homeless people, like people in destitute condition, reliant upon other people's mercies, be able to subsist only by finding a little bit here and a little bit there, even though they were blessed once and then chose to follow a different course in life. Or when an olive tree is beaten, having two or three berries in the topmost bough, or four or five in its most fruitful branch, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Either the tree is loaded and a few berries are left, or the tree is not yielding very much, hardly worth it to harvest. Again, denoting scarcity and all of that, a covenant curse. In that day, men will have regard to their maker, and their eyes look to the Holy One of Israel. So this has the effect of turning people back to God, with whom they have a covenant relationship, but which they broke, bringing upon themselves the curses of the covenant, having been blessed for a time and now being without and suffering want has the effect of causing them to repent. The Holy One of Israel, too, is used there in an exemplary sense, as we've discussed before, that they, too, would become sanctified or holy or consecrated after the pattern of their God, their Maker. And regard not the altars, the works of their hands, so their eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel and they have regard to their Maker nor look to things made by their fingers, the idols of prosperity and the shining images. God has made man, and man has made the altars, and the works of man's hands or the idols, the idols of prosperity. People become prosperous, having been blessed of God with plenty. They start coveting those things that they have, and that way they turn to idolatry and turn away from God and don't have regard to Him. And so, verse 8 People are repenting. They're going back to their God, leaving the other things which they now recognize as a substitute for God. In that day their mighty cities shall be like the deserted towns of the Hivites and Amorites, which they abandoned before the Israelites during the desolation. When the Israelites came in to the land of Canaan, they desolated it, or they desolated the Canaanites who were there, who were a people ripe in iniquity. They too were an idolatrous people, and they too were thrown out of the land by the Israelites. And now the same thing is happening to the Israelites themselves. Even their great and mighty cities will become like the deserted towns which they abandoned. Verse 10, For have you forgotten your God, your salvation, and not remember the rock, your fortress? Here there are several metaphors. Your God, your salvation. So God here personifies salvation. God is salvation itself. You turn to God for salvation because he saves you. He's the Savior. If you want salvation, you want him. He's it. And remember not the rock, your fortress. 
He's also the rock upon which you stand, who's your defense against all evil, against all the powers of the adversary. These have been forgotten and not remembered. Now they're remembered again, hopefully. But those who forget God and don't remember him, for them there is little hope. It says, therefore, though you plant choice crops and sow hybrid seed, and though you make them thrive the day you plant them, causing them to sprout the very morning you sow them, yet shall the harvest vanish in a day of diseases and incurable pain. They have a very sophisticated system of agriculture, horticulture, and they were very successful in what they did, but they don't have any control over the weather. You know, God can bring a drought if he wants to, or he can bring enemies into the land. Their harvest, their plentiful harvest, vanishes. The day is the day of judgment that God brings upon the wicked, the day of universal judgment upon the nations of the world, that is rife with diseases and incurable pain. There is no help at that time. It's like a homeless person can't go to the doctor or can't go to the hospital. He ends up totally miserable. Verse 12, Woe to the many peoples in an uproar who rage like the raging of the seas, tumultuous nations in commotion like the turbulence of mighty waters. While these are the nations who are the Assyrian alliance, remember the king of Assyria, and his alliance are called by the name Sea and River, Sea and Commotion, the river and flood. And his alliance of peoples that we mentioned in chapter 13, the Lord of hosts is marshalling an army for war. They come from a distant land beyond the horizon and so forth. An uproar among kingdoms as of nations assembling, a tumult on the mountains as of a vast multitude. Chapter 13, verse 4. This is those nations. These are the people in an uproar who are raging. The same terms I used to describe them, tumult and uproar, the link with the power of chaos, the flood. King of Assyria and his armies are a new flood that floods over the whole earth. There's very strong links here to the Assyrian alliance that conquers the world. Woe is a covenant curse. We notice that whatever they do, whatever the king of Assyria does and his alliance of nations do, to the nations of the world, to the wicked of the world, whom the Lord destroys at their hands, through their agency. They're God's instrument in destroying the wicked. They are the wicked destroying the wicked. Whatever they do to others is also done to themselves. So yes, there is a woe upon the wicked of the world, whom the Assyrian alliance of nations destroys, but there is a woe upon the Assyrian alliance themselves, as in this case. Woe to the many peoples in an uproar who rage like the raging of the seas. The king of Assyria personifies rage and anger, wrath and indignation, and so forth. The people that follow him are like him in that respect. They're angry, they rage, they're indignant, they're wrathful, they're vengeful, they're seeking to harm others, especially the Lord's people, if they can. Kind of like Hitler in before the Second World War and during the Second World War. He had it in for the Jews, or the covenant people of the Lord. Any Antichrist type will rage against the people of God, try to annihilate them from the earth and take over the earth, take over the world. Nations may roar like the roaring of great waters. So what? But when he rebukes them, they will flee far away. When the Lord rebukes them, he will do to them what they have done to others. 
They will be driven before the wind like chaff on the mountains or as whirling dust in a storm. Notice the mixing of the metaphors here. They were waters, and now they're driven like chaff. It's like the Lord dried up the Red Sea. Israel passed over on dry land. So these nations are, as it were, dried up and become whirling dust and chaff. On the mountains or among other nations, they will be driven before the wind as in a storm. The Lord can kick up a storm too, just as they can, and bring upon them the very thing that they did to others. At evening time shall be the catastrophe, and before morning there shall be no more. This is the lot of those who plunder us, the fate of those who despoil us. So they too, as they destroyed nations overnight in the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, so they themselves disappear overnight as well. They'll be there one day and gone the next. Of course, the day is also the day of judgment. Maybe a literal day, an overnight destruction, actually in one night, or it can also be that day of judgment, that short period of time of about three years, when all of this scenario will play itself out. Those who plunder us and those who despoil us were the Assyrians. The Lord commissions him in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, against the godless people, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil. Those terms link this passage to the king of Assyria again, as the flood imagery and the rage and so on, and the uproar and tumult linked to the king of Assyria earlier.